think a lot of people have stereotypes of the Japanese that they're very cold and serious, but actually Japanese are really kind of softies or sentimental or, or have this real like emotional side to them that I think people don't realize. And so they really care about small things that you might do that are personal to them or that recognize them as people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buchelman. This podcast is for individuals who want to develop and strengthen the communication skills and mindsets that are essential for a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. Today, I'm sharing a conversation that I got to have with Rochelle Kopp. Rochelle is the founder and managing principal of Japan Intercultural Consulting, which is an international training and consulting firm focused on Japanese business. Her area of expertise is Japanese culture and business practices, particularly Japanese communication style and organizational behavior, and decision making in Japanese firms. She's also a prolific writer and posts much of her practical and insightful work on LinkedIn, so if you're not following her there already, you're definitely missing out. We'll hear much more about her work and what she's learned in the upcoming interview, so be sure to stick around to learn more. My name is Rochelle Kopp, and I am managing principal of Japan Intercultural Consulting. Perfect. So could you tell us a little bit about your history with Japan? Certainly. So I got interested in Japan back when I was in high school for a variety of reasons that all kind of came together at one time. My hobby was doing artwork and I grew up near Chicago and the Chicago Art Institute has a wonderful collection of Japanese art, especially Yukioe, as well as a large collection of impressionists who, as you might be aware, were highly influenced by Japan. I took classes in an artist studio and there was a Japanese artist who worked there and she was really fascinating and her art was wonderful. I had several friends who were Japanese American and I really liked hanging out at their houses. Their parents were really nice. They had lots of like cool Japanese things around. There was also an exchange student from Japan who sat with my group of friends for an entire year every day at lunch. And every day she had some fascinating Japanese thing with her. Maybe it was just a Japanese novel she was reading, but you know, if you've never seen a Japanese book before, it looks pretty different than an American one. So I was always fascinated by whatever things she happened to have with her. So th those were all kind of happening around me. And I'm dating myself, but at this time, when I was in high school, the miniseries Shogun came out. And that was, you know, at the time, this was before cable TV or Netflix and you know, whatever was the, the miniseries on network TV was a big deal. And so that was pretty fascinating. And just, you know, everyone was starting to become interested in Japan at that time. And it, it kind of crystallized for me. Then when I went to college, I knew I wanted to have a career in business. And I thought, well, if I learn Japanese, it'll be useful from the cultural side. I can you know, maybe read the characters on those ukiyo-e. I can maybe do more interesting things with Japan, but it would also be really helpful for a future career. And I thought, you know, kill two birds with one stone. That was my plan. Great. And you've definitely been able to come a long way with that combination as well. Yes, it's worked pretty well. 
So could you tell us a little bit more specifically what Japan Intercultural Consulting does? Certainly. So our main um, offering is cross-cultural training seminars. We also do a lot of executive coaching and team building. And our main client base is Japanese companies, global operations. And we also work with firms from other countries that either have operations in Japan or are working closely with Japanese organizations in some other way. Great. So you are very prolific on LinkedIn with your writing and also sharing some of the other work that you're doing in the cross-cultural communication space with Japan. And one of the things that you talk about quite a bit is allowing for peak performance with people in Japan or in a cross-cultural workplace. Could you tell us a little bit about what it means to create that kind of workplace? Well, what you want to be doing whenever you are working with Japanese, or I'd say really anytime it's cross-culturally, is that you want to be creating strong relationships. And before the pandemic, I was recommending people in other countries to go to Japan and spend time there and get face-to-face with your Japanese colleagues or clients or partners, et cetera. And obviously that isn't practical at the moment. And even for people who are within Japan, people are tending to stay at home or, or not, not, not be running around to do a million in-person meetings. And so that dynamic has had to shift a little bit. But I think the same idea of creating strong relationships, getting to know people as people, having them get to know you is really critical for working together effectively. Great. So what does it mean to get to know people as people? Because it seems like something that's obvious, but I can see how it might trip people up where you just see somebody at work or you just have this one form of transactional relationship with somebody, how do you take that next step in a practical way cross-culturally where you might also be a little bit nervous about, oh, how do I interact with them in a culturally appropriate way? What if we have nothing in common? That sort of concern. Right. Um, I think maybe the best way to answer this question would be to share an example with you of someone who did this really skillfully. So this is what the situation was. I was hired by a Japanese company's U.S. operation And they said, well, we want you to come in and do a seminar for our sales administrators. And little did I know that when I walked into that room of sales administrators, I would find a bunch of people who were really deeply unhappy with their colleagues in Japan. That it turned out for this particular company, they did all their manufacturing in Japan and they were making large pieces of equipment that were used in factories that, you know, cost millions of dollars each were very, very complicated. And they were selling them to the U.S. um, companies. And so what would happen is, is that when the sales force at the subsidiary in the U.S., when they had sold a project, then it got handed over to a sales administrator who would shepherd it through the process and keep everyone on the U.S. customer side apprised of when things were going to get where. And also during the process, there would often be questions or things that would come up from the U.S. customer that then the sales administrators would need to convey to the people in Japan and get an answer and relay it back to the customer, which sounds simple and straightforward. However, the people at the parent company did not speak English very well. 
they were, you know, the engineers who, who were very overloaded with various work they had to do. Also, it turns out for this particular company at this time, their American customers were 10% of their total customer base. So they were much more focused on their very demanding customers in Japan. And maybe when there was a little time left over from dealing with them, then they'd answer the inquiry from the US um, team. And so what, may, what happened was that a lot of times one of these sales administrators would have you know, a fairly urgent request from an American client. And this is someone who's paid you know, $2 million for a giant machine that they feel like they want to get quick answers. And they could not get an answer out of their people in Japan. And they would get very upset and very frustrated and sort of convey that frustration to the people in Japan. And so this was becoming a problem. And it turns out that that's why they had brought me in to do training for this group. So I had to spend about oh, at least 10 minutes listening to them tell me about how deeply unhappy they were and how frustrating it was that they didn't get quick answers from their colleagues in Japan. There was a lot of anger there, basically. So I kind of let them vent. And after they had kind of told me their frustration, there's one gal sitting in the back. I remember her, she had bright red hair. Sitting in the back of the room, she raises her hand and she says, and I, I can't replicate it, but she was from Texas and she had kind of a draw. And so I, I don't know what y'all are talking about. Something, something like that. Again, I can't do impersonations well, but just imagine, you know, I don't know what you guys are all talking about because I hear back from my counterpart in Japan right away every day whenever I ask him something. So the entire room turns around to look at her. What are you talking about? How could that ever be? He answers you every day? And she said, yeah, he answers me every day. It's, I don't have any trouble at all. And so I said, okay, let me ask you a question. Did you do anything special that might've created a relationship or rapport or way of working with this person that kind of encouraged him to be answering you promptly? You know, did you do something special? And she said, well, you know, I joined this company a year ago. I'd never worked for a Japanese company before. I'd never like had a job where I had to email with someone in J Japan every day. And I thought, well, this is kind of cool. And while I'm talking to this person in Japan, wouldn't it be nice to actually like get to know him? And so what she started to do is when she would send her whatever query of the day it was to him, she put PS. I went camping with my family this weekend. What did you do? And then he write back his business email. And then at the end, like, oh, I coached my son's baseball team this weekend. And so there it started every day when they wrote to each other, there was just like one line at the bottom where they shared something about themselves or something that was going on in their lives, or if there had been you know, a, a weather situation or other problem at the other person's side. Oh, I heard about the typhoon. I hope you're okay, you know, kind of things. Or a comment on other things like, you know, congratulations on your new president or, you know, whatever, right? And so they did this every day. And so basically what she had done is she had replicated the kind of thing you do over a beer with someone in emails. It wasn't taking huge amounts of time or space. So it wasn't burdensome to everyone. But what it did is it said to her counterpart in Japan, hey, 
I'm treating you like a human being, not like the information ATM. The other people were treating their counterparts in Japan like the information ATM. And then when the, the ATM did not dispense information, they'd be like, you're rattling the machine and you're know, okay, come on, God, come out with the information. And you know, you can imagine how well that, that went over with people in Japan who are used to more kind of polite ways of dealing with things. And sort of the verbal equivalent of pounding on the table was, was not really working very well. So that's what she did is she created a relationship and she showed interest in and respect for him as a human being apart from the role that he was playing in that time. Yeah, that's great that she somehow found a way to replicate some of the benefits of a nomikai <laughs> while right, nowhere exactly. near Japan. Right, that's awesome. right. And just had a little something in their email every day to kind of look forward to or make it fun and make it just make it personal and warm. You know, I think a lot of people have stereotypes of the Japanese that they're very cold and serious, but actually Japanese are really kind of softies or sentimental or, or have this real like emotional side to them that I think people don't realize. And so they really care about small things that you might do that are personal to them or that recognize them as people. So then apart from this, finding ways to incorporate really getting to know your counterpart in Japan in a less professional way, would you say that another key to finding success working with Japanese people is being aware of business etiquette? Or does that not really play as much of a role as people would think? Oh, I want to say both. Okay. So on one hand, yes, it's a good thing to know the etiquette. There's certain things that, yeah, you probably don't want to mess up and it would look bad. On the other hand, I feel that a lot of people have been kind of convinced that Japanese etiquette is something horribly complex and difficult that they won't be able to master. And that is a mystery. And frankly, I've seen people get really stressed out about it, you know, sort of tying themselves up in knots and like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And oh, how do I do that business card? And I'm, I'm going to look terrible, you know, and, and that's not helpful at all. So on one hand, I do think you need to learn about it. On the other hand, it's, it's, it's not the big giant deal that some people make it out to be. And, and to be honest, I feel sometimes that some people you know, in my field who are doing cross-cultural training on Japan want to make Japanese etiquette sound really difficult so they have something to sell people. Yeah, that is something I can definitely um, get behind because I briefly taught at a company in my hometown that does business with Japan. And my students were mostly engineers, so they're very specific and they like to make sure that they do everything correctly. So when I was teaching them about Japanese business etiquette, some of them just got extremely stressed out. Like, oh, when I actually meet somebody, I, I, I mess up because I don't remember how to do things exactly correctly. And I'm just like, just do your best. It's a practice. It's showing respect by participating in the culture rather than trying to master the culture. Right, right. I think that's a good way of putting it. I think you want to show that you're making an effort. And if you're not perfect, you know, then that's okay because you're not Japanese and they'll give you some slack, right? But the fact that you've made some effort to learn about what the culture is and that you're trying, that's the important thing, I think. So another thing that I have seen you write about and discuss is 
the rice paper ceiling <laughs> in Japan and in Japanese subsidiaries, maybe in your home country. What is it? And what should you be looking for in a company if you think that this might become an issue? Mm, okay, good question. So yeah, that's the title of、um, one of my books, The Rice Paper Ceiling, Breaking Through Japanese Corporate Culture. And you want to play on words on the term glass ceiling. And so the glass ceiling is the barrier to advancement for women in business that although it's not supposed to be there or it's, it's sort of supposed to be invisible, it's still there and you kind of hit your head on it, right?、Um, and so the, the, the rice paper ceiling, you know, again, I was trying to think of some substance that was、um, you know, Japanese. And Um, the thing about rice paper or you know, washi in Japanese is that there's various different types of washi. And some washi are like tissue paper, they're very, very thin. You could very easily puncture it. Other types of washi are pretty heavy duty and they're almost like Tyvek, which is the, the material that they use to make FedEx envelopes, right? And so very hard to puncture. And so I wanted to kind of use that as analogy because it really depends on the company that we can't say it's exactly the same in all Japanese companies.、Um, and so what I really recommend to people is to be looking at your company and see what is it that they are actually doing. Do they have non Japanese who are in senior positions? Also, do they have non Japanese who are on their board? That really is, is the most telling thing of have they ever put non Japanese in significant responsible positions? You know, lots of Japanese companies have been doing that. And you and I am just way behind in, in getting this done, but someday I'm going to do an updated edition of the rice paper ceiling and I'm going to talk about, you know, Really, there are lots and lots of, for example, US operations of Japanese firms where now the top person is, is an American. And, you know, and that wasn't the case at all very much when I first wrote this book. And so there's been a big change, and there's been you know, more Japanese companies that are willing to put non Japanese in key positions. Often it's people who have come up within the ranks. Also, Japanese companies are getting a little bit more comfortable looking outside to hire someone as well, right? And there's a big push in Japan to put non Japanese on the boards of firms. And so you're seeing more of that. And so, again, that's symbolic. You know, is, you know, is the company really walking its talk on diversity at the highest levels, right? So, if you do find yourself in a company where you suspect there may be a rice paper ceiling above you, Are there any things that people can think about doing or possibly find ways to maneuver around <laughs> that rice paper ceiling? Well, I think always when you're talking about kind of career planning or getting ahead, that one thing that's very, very important is just first that you be doing your job really well. And I think the better that you do your job and the more comfortable that you make people with you, the more potential you will have for breaking whatever barriers there are, right? Because, you know, whatever、um, group that they're thinking they want to promote more, but if you're not someone who really does a good job, that they're not going to promote you, right? So it's the, really the main thing is to be good at what you do, right? And, To make sure that that's getting you know, properly evaluated and recognized within the firm. And then it, it, once you're really sure that you have the 
the track record that would be needed to be able to move forward, then I think it's a matter of looking carefully at your firm and saying, well, what, what potential positions could I be aiming for? And that's where you can ask your manager or a lot of times in Japanese firms, individual managers aren't really good at giving career advice. So maybe that's going to your HR department and say, you know, I want to plan my long-term career in this company. And ultimately I'd like to aim for X post. You know, what advice can you give me about what I can do to prepare myself to get from where I am now to that kind of position? And see what they say about it. Do they have a clear career path? Do they have an idea for how you can prepare yourself? Or is the idea of putting someone like you in that position, like obviously not on their radar screen, right? So I think you can learn a lot from how they react to that, right? Definitely. Are there any other ways that you're aware of that HR functions a bit differently in Japan versus, I guess, more specifically for us, American companies or other Western companies? Oh my gosh, a huge list. I wrote a whole book on this topic. Yeah, HR in Japan is very different than in basically most other countries. And the reason it's so different is because in Japan, it's starting to change, but fundamentally, they don't have a fluid labor market. And because of that, they have kind of a unique system for HR where people are hired immediately when they graduate from school, you know, usually university, but in some cases for shop floor workers, it might be high school, but they they join the firm and then they stay for the firm for their entire career until um, the general retirement age, which is 60. And so firms can rely on people staying with the company for their whole career. They don't have to worry about holding on to people or keeping people. And so to be thinking about, well, how do we do retention is not something you need to do in that environment, right? And so then the the HR systems are very much geared towards how do we take people, you know, starting from when they joined us right out of school and how do we develop them How do we move them around and give them the experience? How do we bring them into upper level positions? And so that's the, that's the kind of the emphasis that there tends to be, right? Are any of those things starting to change or is HR a little bit of a slower area to adapt? Well, it's definitely a very, very slow area to adapt. And I think that in Japan, Japanese companies are very kind of wedded to the way they've always done HR, which has very um, kind of rigid tracks and rigid paces for promotion and, you know, kind of very, you know, traditional ways of doing things that don't change. I think, however, you are starting to see some changes. And one thing that's been very interesting to me recently is that there is a new buzzword called job gata jinji. Okay, so there really is not a good way of saying this in English. If you translate it literally, it means managing human resources based on jobs as the unit of measure or jobs as your yardstick. And so basically it's referring to the way that we do HR in the United States or in basically most other countries where people are hired based on a job description that's been prepared and people are hired who have the qualifications and the skills and experience needed to do that specifically defined position. 
And so every position in the company is defined and then your salary is based on that. It's all based on this foundation of a job description, right? In Japan, what this lifetime employment approach, it's often called membership style human resources as a contrast to the job style. And so under membership style, people join a company rather than take a job. And then the company puts them where they want to or does with them what they want to do. And people don't necessarily even have job descriptions, but the job description is not acting as your building block. So now recently in Japan, they're starting to talk about, well, maybe we should do job-based and that might make it higher, easier to hire specialists for things or to manage specialists that we have. And so they're starting to think about this sort of change. Is that at the moment still kind of relegated to people with contracts as opposed to being full employees or? They're starting to do it for full employees, but it's very limited and companies are just starting to experiment with it. A lot of the companies that I know are doing it are not doing it for all their employees, but they're doing it for more specialized groups of employees like okay, we're going to do it for all our computer programmers, for example. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Related to that, another thing that you've mentioned in on LinkedIn especially is a recent focus that you've had on servant leadership among mm-hmm. Japanese managers. How would you characterize what a more traditional Japanese management style is? Okay, traditional man- Japanese management style tends to be rather top-down, where the boss is telling subordinates, here's what you do, right? So it's very hierarchical. One thing about Japanese managers is I feel like they're often at one stream or the other. So either they're really micromanaging and they're kind of yelling at people and they're just being really tough, or they're at another end of the scale where they're just like really hands off and like leave everyone to fend for themselves. So the idea of servant leadership is that it's neither of those. So rather than a top-down view of telling people what to do, it's someone supporting their team members and creating an environment where it's easy for them to get their job done. But at the same time, assuming that people, they know themselves what to do or they can figure it out because they know how to do their jobs well. So it's that that kind of approach. What I like in the servant leadership approach to is like an Olympic athlete and their coach. And so you know, the athlete is the one who performs and they, they know how to perform, but they benefit from having a coach who someone can look at them objectively and give them advice, um, create an environment where they can excel, work on some of the supporting things like a training schedule or a food schedule, et cetera, or worry about the travel plans or whatever it is, it is and give them feedback give them a pep talk. You know, those are all things that your um, coach would do. And so I kind of feel like the servant leader is like the Olympic athlete coach to their employees. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned the topic of feedback more specifically. How does feedback currently function in Japanese organizations, or I guess more traditionally function in Japanese organizations? Um, I guess I want to just answer it doesn't. (laughs) And so I have found that uniformly feedback is one of the weakest skills for Japanese managers, that 
you know, as I said, you know, you you have on one hand the Japanese managers micromanaging and screaming at people, and and they're probably giving negative feedback in a pretty harsh way, and often on very superficial things, like your desk is a mess or something like that, right? And then on the other hand, you have other Japanese managers who never give feedback at all, even when they really ought to be, and are are afraid to say anything to their team members. So you have kind of both ends. And so the thing is, you know, feedback. There is no Japanese word for feedback other than feedbacku. You know, feedback just pronounced with Japanese katakana pronunciation. It's not an original concept in Japan. That in Japan, people tend to avoid direct communication of information that the other person doesn't want to hear. And so they're very non-confrontational. So that makes it hard to give feedback. The other thing is that for those managers who are giving lots of feedback in that really harsh way, there's this idea that the person higher in the hierarchy can really just tell the person who's lower in the hierarchy what to do and just be very direct with them. Also, Japan is a culture where people don't always spell things out in words, and that's what feedback is about. So. It's I, just an example that comes to mind here. I and mean, again, this is just from a movie, but I thought it was really well, nicely done. If you, anyone can remember back to the first original Karate Kid movie. And near the end of the movie, Mr. Miyagi gives one of his treasured cars to the young man. And he gives him a car. And the, the young man says, Mr. Miyagi, Wow, you're the greatest. You know, again, that's very American, very kind of gushy, right? And Mr. Miyagi says, well, well, kid, you're not so bad yourself. And that would be like the most positive verbal feedback that you could probably expect from a Japanese man of his generation, right? Or a traditional Japanese manager, that they're not gushy and they don't say much. And even saying that much was a lot. But he gave him a car. It was very big demonstration. So that would be a very Japanese thing to do is to send a message with a gift rather than words. And the problem is, you know, most gifts are not or other actions are not going to be as large or as obvious as giving someone a car. And so they're often misunderstood. And so, for example, I remember one situation at a Japanese company, there was an employee who the Japanese staff thought that her work was absolutely terrific. And so they wanted to give her, uh, well, they gave her more work to do. And so, oh, she did this really well. Well, let's have her do this and let's have her do this. Well, the woman became very upset. She's like, they're just dumping on me and I'm getting all this stuff to do and I can't handle it. It was actually a compliment. They thought she was doing so well, they wanted her to do more, but no one ever said to her, You've done so well with this work that we want to give you this additional responsibility, or we think that you can do this one as well. We think you are, have great technique or whatever. They never said any of those things. So she completely misunderstood it. It's very easy to have things like that happen when you're, you know, you have people from a verbal culture and people from a nonverbal culture working together, right? So one thing I think is happening is that younger Japanese as well would like to hear things in words a little bit more. So there's a culture change within Japan or an evolution. And so 
I tell Japanese colleagues uh, or, or clients, if you learn how to do feedback, it'll work well with your non-Japanese employees, but it's going to work well for your younger Japanese employees too. And kind of this traditional lack of feedback in Japanese companies, what would you say is the source of that more? Is it how people are promoted within a company? Is it just a lack of training? Or is it just the expectation that if somebody's been at a company for long enough, they somehow should just know how to do this? Well, I think it's all of those above. You know, I do think there is an expectation that people figure things out for themselves. So rather than someone having to tell you you're doing a good job or you're doing a bad job, you should be observing their reactions to your work and putting two to two in together and figuring it out. So there's definitely that expectation. And whether people can actually fulfill that expectation or not is another problem, but there's that expectation there. I think there is a lack of training and role models for Japanese. You know, traditionally, there isn't any training in how to give feedback or performance evaluations or anything like that. I mean, I do a lot of feedback training for Japanese, and they'll often tell me, you know, this is really hard because I don't have a model for this in my own life. I never got any feedback from my bosses ever. So like, you're asking me to do this thing that no one ever did for me. And that's pretty big, I think, right? It's definitely a huge learning curve if it's something you haven't encountered a lot in your own life. Exactly, right. It really is. So how likely do you think that this form of servant leadership is to catch on in Japan or even become standard in the country? Well, that's a question. Oh, that would be my dream if it became standard. I do find a lot of Japanese who are very interested in it. One other thing I'll say about servant leadership is that It's particularly applicable when you are managing high-skill employees. So it's not a new concept. It's really from like 40 or 50 years ago, but it recently has been getting more attention in the U.S. again by people in the tech industry because it's very applicable if you're doing, for example, agile software development, something where you have the software programmers and they are the experts in their work. They don't need anyone to tell them how to program. They know how to do that. They're, they're you know, very high-skilled labor. And so this approach works well for people like that. And Japan is going to be needing to effectively utilize high-skilled labor better, right? So it's, it's kind of appropriate for that. So I find that there are a lot of Japanese who are looking for a new way to manage. They don't want to be like their managers were to them, right? I have one client who's like, oh, yeah, like every day my manager used to throw an ashtray at me. He's like, not just once in a while, every day, at some point during the day, there would be an ashtray flying through the air. So, you know, if that's you know, what your experience is of being a manager, you might want to do something different, right? And so I do find a lot of Japanese want something different and they're searching for something. Also, I have found another group that's really interested in servant leadership is Japanese women. And I feel like that's a really good fit for them because, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but a big issue in Japan, they've been having trouble moving more women into management positions. And there's a whole lot of complicated reasons for that. We could do an entire other podcast to discuss, including lack of daycare support and lack of the men doing their share of housework, et cetera. Anyways, there's all sorts of factors. But one factor that's out there is that 
and surveys have shown this, a lot of Japanese women have no interest in becoming a manager. And this idea starts pretty early. So, you know, I was doing some teaching a couple of years ago. I was, I was helping out at Kitakyushu University. They were starting a new global business program. And I was helping them set that up. And as part of that, I did some teaching down there. And one day I was doing a class with freshmen who, and we, it was pretty early in the school years. They had only started, you know, school like, you know, a few weeks earlier. And something in whatever curriculum that I was using was talking about managers. And so I asked the class, well, if you think you would like to be a manager someday, please raise your hand. Expecting, you know, like in the US, that probably at least half of the room would raise their hands. Only two or three people raised their hands, and I think two of the three were male. And it was a class of maybe like uh, 60 or 70% women, okay, or maybe even 80% of us. It was definitely more women than men. And I'm like, no, no, you guys are the only ones who want to be managers. I'm like, okay, everyone who's not raising your hand, why are you not raising your hand? Why are you not interested in being a manager? And the answers that I got were like, they were afraid of it. Like, if I become a manager, I can't have work-life balance. Or if I become a manager, I would have too much responsibility. And then if things went badly, I would get in trouble. Or they just had all these negative images of being a manager. And these were college freshmen. So at that point, they had already picked that up, right? So it starts early. But what I see a lot, you know, working with, you know, women who are already in their careers and they're maybe you know, at the point where they're about to become managers or have become managers. And I find that a lot of Japanese women have, you know, these negative feelings. And in part, it's because of kind of similar to what we said before, they don't have role models. And they think, oh, well, being a manager means like being all those male managers that I've had who I don't like and I don't respect. I don't want to be like them. You're telling me I have to be a manager. That means I have to be like them. And so when I've said, well, you know, there's another way to be a manager, that you don't have to be bossing people around, that you can be actually nurturing, if you want to think of it that way, and that that can be a really effective way to be a manager. And so I've found a lot of Japanese women are really delighted to see an alternative that feels more comfortable to them, that feels more like authentic to them, to who they are, that they don't have to be like some other person who they really don't even like. So, so I feel like servant leadership for Japanese women is, is a good thing too. Definitely. And it also fits in nicely to what is more acceptable for women to behave like in the workplace versus what is more acceptable for men in the workplace. There's not as much of a penalty if you take that sort of servant leadership approach from what right, I've right. heard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So on a more practical level, what does servant leadership look like for managers? You mentioned they act more like coaches. Their focus right. is more on allowing people to do their best work. Sure. So I think that the, the key thing about being a servant leader is you let go of telling people what to do. Instead of giving them instructions and, and telling them what to do, you're providing the vision, make sure they understand why is it we're doing what we're doing. And then you provide support to them. 
and the support can be feedback. The support can be running interference with other parts of the organization. It could be solving problems that have to deal with outside the organization or supporting them in solving problems, Ever doing everything you can to give them a good work environment so they can concentrate on doing their thing and doing it well. So just to start wrapping things up a little bit today, do any examples come to mind of communication breakdowns in Japan or in a Japanese company that you attribute to differences in culture? or at least having that as a factor. (laughs) Oh boy, I find so many of them, right? I mean, I guess here, this is maybe a basic one for some people listening perhaps, but you know, one that I just see that plays out over and over again is, you know, non-Japanese person gives some proposal or idea to a Japanese person. They say, well, I think it's gonna be difficult to make this work. And the non-Japanese person hears the word difficult and thinks, oh, I've been given a challenge. I have to work on it harder. And they go off and they spend a whole bunch more time on it. And the Japanese person's like, didn't you hear me? (laughs) You know, they had been trying to give a message of, hey, you know, you probably don't want to go down this path. And it wasn't picked up on, right? So that would be one that I see happening quite a bit. Mm -hmm, It's one of those perennial ones. So if you were chatting with somebody who is going to Japan for business and you could really only teach them one thing about the country or its culture ahead of time, what would you choose to teach them about? Well, the thing that I always tell people is my one piece of advice, if I were limited in that way, is talk less, listen more. That, you know, particularly with Americans, I'm assuming a lot of your audience for this is American, but it goes for people from a lot of other cultures too, but particularly Americans, we are very verbal and we love to hear ourselves talk. And we will talk, 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 talk. And if you do that, Japanese will politely be quiet, but then you won't hear anything that they have to say. And you'll be missing out on a lot. And you'll be making it hard for them to share what they want to share. So sometimes you just have to shut up, you know, and and give Japanese a chance to express themselves. And it may mean feeling a little bit more comfortable with silence. A lot of times for us as Americans, if there's silence more than a few seconds, we start to feel uncomfortable. Let that silence linger a little bit. And often, just as it's feeling weird for you, it's probably just when your Japanese counterpart is feeling really comfortable and then they'll say something really valuable. So if you can just curb your instinct to talk every single minute, it will make a big difference. Yeah, I think you're being a little gracious with a few seconds. I feel like Americans get uncomfortable with a second of silence in conversation. <laughs> right. <laughs> so thank you for being so generous with your time today. Okay, thank you. hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. If you would like to learn more about Rochelle, her work, and Japan Intercultural Consulting, be sure to check out all of the links in the description of this episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. 
If you would like to support the podcast financially, please check out the link to the coffee page to keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondol.